Open with me, if you would, again to Psalm chapter 36. As I introduce this morning's message and give you a title and a description, in Psalm 36, the title of the psalm as it appears in my Bible is to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. This psalm is addressed, it's commissioned as a work of worship to be employed in the worship of God's people. David, its author, the inspired author, by the power of the Holy Spirit, penned these words as worthy themes of exaltation to the Lord of glory. As I was working through this psalm and putting together my message, I came up with a three-word title of my own, which I think emphasizes one of the perhaps surprising themes, not only of this psalm, but of all the psalms, and that title is Ode of Antithesis. If I were to give a title to this psalm and what strikes me from it as we read this morning, it this morning, it would be that title. This psalm is an ode or a song, a poem, a piece of artwork and a manifest overflowing just strike, stroke of genius from the pen of the greatest poet in all of history, an ode of antithesis. What is antithesis? Antithesis, you might ask. Well, there's two things in opposition in an antithesis. An antithesis is drawing a distinction between two polar opposites. In the case of this psalm, we have the first word as transgression. And then we have the theme of the psalm later, three times repeated, your steadfast love. That is to say, there is an antithesis. These two are totally opposed to one another. Transgression and God's steadfast love. In other words, it is God's steadfast love in the cross of Jesus Christ that declared war on the transgression of the heart of the human being, his sin. Antithesis also is used in literary terms to rhetorically or through language demonstrate a contrast of ideas through means of parallelisms that are opposites again. And it's the arrangement of these concepts side by side that help to underscore the beauty, the clarity, and the power of truth. And the Word of God does this over and over again. If you set the sin of mankind in all its heinous depravity next to the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ, the scope of the truth involved in the great work of our salvation becomes an amazing glorious picture of grace and power. But it is only when we understand the depths of our own wickedness and the wickedness this whole world is engulfed in because of original sin. It is only in understanding the depth of our own depravity of heart that we can appreciate the conquering power of our Messiah in defeating every last enemy. Sin and its consequences. Death itself and the agent of evil that rules to some degree, though subordinate to Christ, Satan himself, crushed under the overcoming, conquering foot of our preeminent, powerful, victorious Messiah, Jesus Christ, on the great work of the cross. If we turn back a few pages, I'll just, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but to give you an idea of the context of antithesis as a theme in Scripture, I'd like to borrow some segments all the way back from Genesis, a familiar verse I hope for you are two here. In three, fourteen, and 15 we read, After Adam and Eve had fallen into this great and tragic rebellion against the Almighty Holy God, and they had 
opened up the floodgates of wretchedness. And so we, their seed today, even today, are born in sin. Because of this act, the Lord intervenes and He says to the serpent, the agent of evil in the garden, He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In verse 15, this is the famous verse on which the gospel hinges, perhaps at its earliest form in Scripture. Theologians call it, and sometimes in Latin, the proto-evangelion, the very first gospel, proto-beginning or prototype. We think, where is the first sign of hope in a sin-ridden world? We find it here in verse 15. The Lord speaking to the serpent again says, I will put enmity, that is, I will put animosity, a spirit of warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, Christ, the offspring of the woman, speaking into the future, shall bruise your head and you, speaking to the serpent, shall bruise his heel. This is the antithesis. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, is an antithesis at war in opposition to the seed or the offspring of the enemy. The Lord declares sovereignly that He has orchestrated the plan of redemption for glorious purposes and setting the stage for the contrast of His glory against this dark backdrop of sin by saying there will come a day when My Son will bruise your head. And though the conflict will appear shocking and striking to us because for a moment there, the heel of our Savior is bruised, we recognize in the full scope of things that that was necessary, necessary to vanquish the power of the enemy. And so the theme of antithesis begins to unfold. Now we need not turn very far in this book before we see this theme picked up again. Chapter 4, verse 8, we have the very first two brothers born to human beings. Cain spoke to Abel, we read in 4, 8, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain... We can interpret this verse, Cain as the offspring of Satan, as it were, spiritually speaking. He rose up against his brother, the offspring of the woman, and killed him. The very first murder by the very first two children of the human race, the antithesis is unfolding in striking terms. Now we turn over just a few more verses, and we find in three, I'm sorry, in uh, six Verse 1, a very interesting account. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Remember again the language of 3.15. I will put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as as their wives as many as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And here there was a union between the two seeds, as it were, and it created great problems in the earth. started to blur the distinction, and we would have lost the antithesis, swallowed up in the depravity of sin if God hadn't sovereignly preserved a representative of the seed of the woman in His servant Noah. And we find this shortly thereafter in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you know the rest of that story, I trust. As the antithesis came then between Noah and the rest of humanity. So we see in the account of Scripture from the very beginning, it is the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman, Cain versus Abel, Seth versus Cain, sons of God versus daughters of men, Noah versus the world. And ultimately, Jesus Christ versus the power of Satan. And in Psalm 36, there's a celebration of these themes. You know, this psalm holds us to account for something in our expressions of art and music and poetry today. It struck me as curious, the theme of this psalm. Notice, for example, in verse 1, that this worship song doesn't begin where you think it might, by a celebration of the glory of God in a reflective sort of way, but instead it begins with the antithesis. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. From the very introduction of this psalm, we see that the wicked are spoken of here. The wicked are sung about here. I wonder just how prominent the timeless themes of divine sovereignty featured in the psalms are featured in our own consciousness, in our own affections, in our own expressions as a modern church. One measure we could say of our commitment to the scriptural refrain of antithesis could be How often do we in modern music celebrate God's power over wickedness? In what context, we might ask, do the wicked or does wickedness appear in our songs? We often don't speak to the sovereignty of God over sin, over wickedness, perhaps to the degree that the Psalms do. This begs me to ask the question, maybe several. Have we forgotten the ultimate purposes of God? Are we somehow want to minimize evil in sort of a, a way that would deny or minimize or uh, that would be in denial of the power of our God to show himself gracious and glorious even though there is wickedness and depravity in this world? We ought not to shrink back from the reality of sin. We ought to see this as an opportunity for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be manifest in His overcoming glorious power when we consider in real terms confessing our own sins and also recognizing the wickedness in the Scriptures and through history. His decrees, have we forgotten them? His decrees from the very garden itself? Have we forgotten His victorious pedigree, Jesus Christ, and His intentions in history to reign triumphant over the last enemy? Have we forgotten His glorious campaign and strategic purposes? Have we forgotten His glory by conquering contrast? In this ode of antithesis here in Psalm 36, David exalts, he exalts the messianic supremacy of Christ. Christ Jesus, forward-thinking here, prophesied here, as the elect line representative in the meta-narrative of salvation. Remember who's writing this psalm. David. David is a type. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. David is the seed of the woman, as it were. David is of the elect line. David is a representative of righteousness in the psalm. This is not to say that David was intrinsically perfect. David, we know, is a gross sinner. We see the record of his sin. But something happened to David that every believer shares. He received by the power of the Holy Spirit's regeneration alone the seed of faith 
that ransomed him soul from the clutches of his sin and delivered him over as a trophy of grace for the Messiah to parade before the forces of darkness, showing that he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the King that conquers and rules over everything, even wickedness, even the wicked, even the worst of all characters of history, over hell, death, the grave, and Satan himself. David is not afraid of the concept of wickedness. He doesn't shy away from being honest about either his own sin and also declaring that there is wickedness in the world. Why? Because it gives him the opportunity to set the stage for the overcoming power of God through his steadfast love. So with that introduction, let's note the emphases of Psalm 36. Note, first of all, the scope of the steadfast love of our God, an antithesis to the transgression of man. Note, secondly, as we walk through this psalm in a moment, note, secondly, the value of the steadfast love of the Lord versus the value of the transgressions or the things that man in his transgression pursues. Thirdly, let's note the object. The object who are the recipients of the steadfast love of the Lord versus the objects of wickedness in this world. Reading again in verse 1, David writes, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Notice the shift here in verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoer lies fallen, there thrust down, unable to rise. Notice first, especially in verses 5 and 6, the scope of the steadfast love of our God. Before we read those verses, I'm sure for everyone who has had their eyes open, even a glimpse, to the weight of the destructiveness of their own sin, if not the weight of the destructiveness of sin as it's evidenced in the effects of the world that surround us, we have all been taken by an overwhelming sense of the crushing despair of a world, of a humanity under the curse of death, the wages of sin. 
tune in for five minutes to the newscast. I made the mistake of doing so this week. A mistake if I'm looking to be encouraged, that is. You turn on the television. What is the news of these days? There's a missing airliner that we can't seem to find despite our uh, proud acclaim to all kinds of technology. It turns out the sea is so deep and vast and this globe is so great that man, in all his God-mocking glory of technology that gives him hubris and pride, we can look into the furthest reaches of space and we think just by studying the world over that maybe we're responsible for it. We find out how small and ineffective we are in just one news story where the sovereign God places his hand over a 747 or whatever airliner it was And we can't find hide nor hair of it. It's like a fool with a blindfold looking for a needle in a haystack. Why? A couple of things. I think God is showing us that we are not sovereign. We are not omniscient. We must pray and depend on Him for our next breath to keep a plane in the air or even find it when it crashes. The news shows us the overwhelming effects of wickedness on this world. There's 200 abductees that you've read about or seen, I'm sure, on the news. Women and children that have been abducted by a terrorist organization in North Africa somewhere. They're being held for whatever ungodly reason uh, we don't even want to imagine. And these stories tug at our heart. There are those who are suffering for Christ's name this globe over. If you submit to some blogs, you can get an account of a death. Every week, and I'm told, statistically speaking, if, when it comes to just death itself, every day that this world suffers, another day in its history, 150,000 humans die, give up the ghost, and pass from this life into eternity. So when we pause and consider the weight of the effects of the consequences of transgression, I'm sure you would agree with me that the only adjective to quite describe it is overwhelming, tragic, Now against that backdrop, let's read again verses 5 and 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Could the psalmist be telling us, In this record here, no matter how suffocating the effects of wickedness, we feel and see around us that they are nothing compared to the all-encompassing power of the steadfast love of God. Could the psalmist be infusing the heart guided by the Holy Spirit to receive the truth of His Word with the hope that would give you joy even at the end of your life? That the God who created you in the first place, that breathes life into every being and creature, that sustains the beasts of the field and you for your next breath, has eternity in the palm of His hand? You see, we are far more likely to be overtaken and overwhelmed with the ubiquitous effects of sin than we are sometimes to consider the Lord over sin and the power of the steadfast love of God to conquer to overcome, to spread abroad His power, not only in our hearts, but the redemptive overflow of His work in history, saving and sanctifying, will actually 
one day redeem the creatures, this earth, the kingdoms, the nations, and one day a new heavens and a new earth will unfold as a testimony to the steadfast love of our God that is spoken here that extends to the heavens. Notice in verse 5 and 6, that David opens this section commenting on the scope of the steadfast love of God by saying it extends in cosmic terms. When we think of heavens, we know both poetically and scientifically, if you will, that we're speaking in ambiguous terms. That is, not that the heavens aren't tangible per se, not that they don't exist, but that they are so vast and far-reaching that in our minds and by our ability, we cannot calibrate the distance where the universe begins or ends. We cannot ascertain, we cannot fathom or imagine or plumb the depths of the heavens. They're beyond our scope. They're beyond our reach. We cannot contain them. But what does the Word of God say? When poetic imagery here and in other places, they're measured in the palm of the hand of our Almighty God. And here we have the degree and scope of His steadfast love described as extending indefinitely into the heavens. It's an all-encompassing reach. Its power cannot be plumbed. Its depths can never be reached. It is an eternal power that is undergirding the steadfast love of our Lord. And we read of it here. And we see against the antithesis this message. No matter how deep the stain of sin, the whitewashing power of Christ's blood is stronger still. And we see no matter how widespread and tragic the effects of even nations and powers that have been twisted in their mind to wreak havoc and genocide and the scourge of sword and famine and injustice, no matter how devastating those things are, the power of a Hitler, a Pol Pot, a Stalin has never reached into the heavens. It was limited. They're dead now. The regimes are gone now. They are buried and filed in the dustbin of history. Yet our God rules, lives, and reigns, and His steadfast love extends to the heavens. I love this picture in addition that the psalmist adds to give us an idea of scope. He doesn't just exalt the ineffable reaches of the cosmic expanse. Something very close and tangible as well to tell us how much his love and care extends to his creatures. At the end of verse 6 he says, Man and beast you save, O Lord. The psalmist is telling us that our God not only cares for you, but He even cares for the plight of the sparrow in the air. Not a single one falls, Christ tells us, without the watch, the oversight, the superintendence of our Heavenly Father. At the end of Jonah, it's an amazing last verse to close the book with, but I think Psalm 36 helps us understand why it's there. In 4.11 of the book of Jonah, I'll turn there very quickly, There has been judgment pronounced, and then there's been judgment escaped because of repentance. And God's servant Jonah is angry, why'd you do this, Lord? And God answers him in so many words, it's because my steadfast love extends to these 120,000 in Nineveh. Not only that, my love extends far beyond your short imagination, Jonah, Notice the extent, verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, 
and also much cattle. And also much cattle. The message in Jonah 4.11 is a steadfast love of God is so unfathomable in its scope that He cares for the cattle of a city, even as His care is extended over human beings. This is amazing. And this is what David reminds us of as he points to the scope of the steadfast love of God. Notice also, under the scope of the steadfast love of our God, David incorporates three ideas under that. He says in verse 5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Then he incorporates in the steadfast love the following, Your faithfulness to the clouds, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, and Your judgments are like the great deep. That is to say, that in considering the steadfast love of God, We have a love that never compromises these three. The steadfast love is also faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord is also righteous. And the steadfast love of the Lord is also just. Can you hear the message of the cross coming forth between the lines of this ancient work of poetry? The only way this can possibly be true is by the sovereign design of Calvary. A steadfast love of God that extends to the heavens even as our Messiah ascended into glory. The steadfast love of God that extends to even the redemption of the created order in the new heavens and the new earth from man to beast. And the steadfast love of God preeminently pictured on the cross of Jesus Christ that demonstrates His faithfulness, His righteousness, and His justice. But notice these three ideas incorporated in the steadfast love also have a poetic scope attached to them. It's not just faithfulness as we might imagine from one human to another, but it's a faithfulness that itself reaches to the clouds. The steadfast love of the Lord is faithful to the extent of the clouds. Again, we're reaching into the heavens We're drawing on the childhood imaginations that we had when we looked to the sky and we were caught away in the beauty and the idea, the romantic notion of there's whole worlds above me that I have not had the opportunity to see. There's uh, Sir John Davies writing in the 1600s, I believe, penned a beautiful work of music inspired by the psalm. He hits on these poetic themes as he exalts the Lord in his music, saying, Thy mercy, Lord, doth to the heavens extend. Thy faithfulness doth to the clouds ascend. Thy justice steadfast as a mountain is. Thy judgments deep as is the great abyss. Thy noble mercies save all living things. The sons of men creep underneath thy wings. With thy great plenty they are fed at will, and of thy pleasure's stream they drink their fill. And even the well of life remains with thee, and in thy glorious light we light shall see. A steadfast love, O Lord, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And note the righteousness of our God, In verse 6, the righteousness incorporated in the steadfast love of the Lord is given a qualifier to quantify its scope as well. It is like the mountains of God. Just to whet your appetite for further study, this 
term or concept of the mountains of God. When the psalmist writes this, imagine what is in his mind. Could he be thinking, and indeed, yes, it is the case of Mount Sinai, where God descended in righteousness to deliver his law to his people? Could he be thinking, and indeed, and certainly is the case of Mount Carmel, where a day of reckoning with the prophets of Baal was called a duel of antithesis with those who had distracted, deceived, and enslaved the people, spiritually speaking? How about mountains of the future? The Mount of Olives, Mount Zion, Christ's ascension into glory, where his feet last touched a high point in the Middle East. Or when Christ returns on Mount Zion. How about Mount Moriah, where Abraham led his son Isaac to be sacrificed. And then that picture of substitutionary atonement is gloriously revealed and a lamb is provided in the bush. How about the mountain of Ararat, where the ark, whereas through judgment God preserved eight people and nestled it safely to repopulate the earth. Great, 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 and so on, grandfather and grandmother of every one of us in this room. What about the Mount of Transfiguration? What about the Mount of Golgotha? The themes that are, enco- that are encompassing in the Scriptures and are attached to this symbol of mountain. Over 500 references cover to cover remind us of reckoning, revelation, memorial, sacrifice, covenant, presence, worship, promises, and the people of God, just to name a few. And this all to make the point that the steadfast love of the Lord is bigger than anything you could possibly imagine. It is righteous. It is righteous like the mountains of God. And thirdly, the steadfast love of the Lord incorporates His judgments, which are like the great deep. If you think of the great deep, a sea, a terrible, unfathomable, chaotic mess is often the picture in Scripture. Well, here we find that the Lord's judgments are nothing trivial or small to reckon with. There is a terror associated with the day of reckoning, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the great white throne judgment as we see it in Scripture. Yet somehow, and we know this in Christ, that the steadfast love of the Lord is so broad and expansive and so comprehensive in its scope that it is extended to us not only in grace and mercy, but as it is offered, it satisfies the judgments which are nothing small or trivial, which are like the great deep. And let me tell you how deep the sufferings of our Lord on Calvary were. They were like the unfathomable depths of the Marianas Trench that may now even be swallowing wreckages of airplanes. They are like the tidal waves that crash when a small movement by the finger of God disturbs the plates that encrust the surface of the earth and sweep away a whole countryside in one cataclysmic moment. The judgments of our God are nothing to be taken lightly. They are to be considered in their weight and in their power. But notice for us the judgments of God were all resting on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, our Lord of glory, when he was crucified that day on Calvary. A day on Calvary where Jesus Christ bore the weight of our sin that was as heavy, as it were, as the great deeps. Can you calculate the weight of the ocean? 
No, I cannot, and neither can I calculate the weight of judgment that Jesus bore for me. Secondly, we behold the emphasis in Psalm 36, not just the scope of the steadfast love of the Lord, but its value. We read in verse 7 this phrase, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The value of the steadfast love of the Lord so far surpasses the value of anything that we are tempted in our sin to sell our soul to obtain. That we need only to meditate on these three verses and we can be overwhelmed with the overflowing abundance of our great God and these promises extended to us in Christ. The value of the steadfast love of the Lord overflows to the children of mankind. Notice children, not men who have earned through a lifetime of breakneck work and, and, and uh, all of their difficult labors, the right to earn and to keep these things. No, children. Children don't earn things. They don't uh, make the same effort that a man does for his own sustenance. Children are dependent on their parents, and so are we dependent on our Father God. Children are given gifts, and children are sustained by those that are sovereign over them, that have watch care and guardianship over their livelihood. And this is the picture here. The precious, steadfast love of God watches over and provides for us as He does His children. He gives us, first of all, refuge, safety. He gives us refuge in the shadow of His wings. And again, the picture of juvenile chickens, children, as it were, little hens, or little uh, chicks cuddling up to their mother hen under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. This is the kind of refuge that the value of God's steadfast love extends to us. This is a safety that Jesus Himself spoke of in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. How long, Jerusalem, have I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks? But alas, in that verse, the antithesis is also apparent. This was the city that killed the prophets, that didn't value the steadfast love of the Lord, that didn't see the mighty work of the Messiah. They didn't partake in the refuge of Jesus Christ and His saving work on the cross. But if your eyes have been opened, believer, to realize that your only hope is in your crucified Messiah, for a moment just meditate on the refuge that you have as a child taking shelter under the shadow of His wings. This is a measure of the value of the steadfast love of our God. Secondly, we read of sustenance. Not just safety, but sustenance. Verse 8, they, us, children, we feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your life do we see light. Imagine the feast that could be prepared from the abundance of our Heavenly Father's household. 
the one who owns this universe, not just this world, the one who owns the deed to the hills upon which the thousands of cattle graze, the one who gives life and by the power of his hand causes the grass to spring up green now with the change of season, that causes the fruit tree to bud and to produce its fruit, that commissions and enables the bee to cross-pollinate from flower to flower to continue to give us the abundance of His great creation. We, His children, dependent on our Heavenly Father, the cultivator, the sustainer, the providential hand that brings the wheat of the field to the table as bread, He is the one who gives us a feast and from the abundance of His house. And this feast is not meant to be thought of only in physical terms, but it's a feasting of the soul. It's a feasting of the intellect. It's a feasting of the affections that can meditate on the object of glorious source of overwhelming beauty, truth, and praise. Jesus Christ, all that He has done and all that He has yet to do. This is the value of the steadfast love of our Lord. It provides for us safety. It provides for us sustenance. And thirdly, it's the source. Listen to these, this threefold escalation that is of picture, of imagery that is used to describe God as our source and His steadfast love as our wellspring of joy. It is for us a drink from the river of His delights. It's a fountain of life In your life do we see light. There is a source and a wellspring from God through the power of His steadfast love to bring as a river the things that we need and the things that we can appreciate in Him. And more than just a river, a river with a fountain, with a fountainhead, headwaters, and a wellspring that is indefinite in its scope and power and glory. And thirdly, it's light It is the illuminating force. It is the all-encompassing glory that comes from the throne of God that emanates to us in limited measure here, but we will appreciate in greater dimension as we are sanctified and ultimately glorified. This, again I say, is the value of the steadfast love of the Lord. It is our safety. It is our sustenance. It is our source. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, in regard to Christianity, he writes, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Reading again a great summary concept that this verse speaks of in verse 9. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. God has not just given us every good reason to believe. He has given us the ability to believe. God has not only given us evidence that He exists, but He's given us the ability to have faith that that evidence is sure and exists. You see, God is Lord of all. He is the fountain of life. He is the light by which we find the fountain. He is the river that brought the waters of the fountain to our cupped hands to raise up and to partake. He is everything. 
He is the beginning and the end. Of him, through him, and to him are all things. In this quote from C.S. Lewis, he is making the statement that's clear from Scripture that you and I are utterly dependent on the revelation of an almighty God. Note, believer, when you pick up these pages today, we sit down to read them tonight. What are you picking up? You're picking up a river. You're picking up a fountain. And you're picking up light. The Word of God says in Psalm 119, 105, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is the light that has dawned on us, the revelation of Almighty God given to us. And it is by this light God revealed through His Scriptures that we are able to see anything else. Now there are things that people value in this regard. The pursuit of reasoning and truth in the antithesis. But notice that their way leads to death. If we go over now and to see on the other side of things, if we do not trust that God is the source, He's the wellspring and He's the light, what are we going to trust in? Well, we might find ourselves antithetically speaking as the transgressor in verses 1 and following. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. You see the problem here? The transgressor does not fear God. He doesn't recognize God as the illuminating source. He doesn't recognize his dependency on God to reveal to him both the power to ascertain as well as the truth to fix his attention on. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Only flattery for himself. He says, I can do it. I can carve my own way. I'm the captain of my destiny. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble even while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And notice as we consider the wellspring of our own safety, sustenance, and source of life against the antithesis, what we would otherwise be blindly pursuing, that we can overflow all the more with worship at the value audit, if you will, of the steadfast love of the Lord considered in Psalm 36. We have nothing else, no other way, no alternative. There is one way, one truth, and one life. Any other way to see and any other source is nothing but fake glory. It's nothing but false truth, self-deceit, deception, death, and doom. In closing this morning, our final point of emphasis in Psalm 36 is to note how David expands in poetic glories on the object of the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice in verse 10 and 11, he says, O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to thee, upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen, they are thrust down unable to rise. Who is the object? of God's steadfast love. Who are the objects, the recipients, who are on the receiving end of the steadfast love of the Lord? David lists them in three ways. He says, they are those who know you. They are the ones who know the Lord. 
They're the ones who are in reconciliation, in relationship with Him. The ones who have realized that the chastisement of their peace with God was on the back of Jesus Christ, His stripes that bore their healing. They are the ones who realize that only in Him can we be in right standing in the presence of God. They're the ones who read Isaiah chapter 6 with fear. When Isaiah steps into the presence of the Almighty, the seraphim, the six-winged creatures who cannot even bear, as it were, to look upon the glory of God and thus have an extra set of wings to cover their face, can only cry one word before the presence of the Lord of glory. Holy, holy, holy. But Isaiah has spoken many words in his life. Many words of blasphemy, many words of sin, many words of selfishness, many short-sighted words of self-confidence, vain ambitions, and deceit. And so when he sees the only thing worth uttering in the presence of God is holy, what is his response? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am before that presence of holiness. Isaiah recognized his intrinsic need for reconciliation. Otherwise, he could never exist in the same room with Almighty God without being struck dead and justly so and immediately so. But Isaiah knew the Lord. He knew that his reconciliation with God was dependent on a righteousness that would be granted to him by mercy and by grace. So he confessed his sin. He confessed the transgression that had been the source and wellspring of his speech up until that point, and then he was commissioned to echo, like David, the glories of Almighty God. Isaiah, with David, became the object of the steadfast love of God. Secondly, David describes the objects of the steadfast love of the Lord as the those upright of heart. Your righteousness to the upright in heart, he says again in verse 10, O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Again, underscoring that where we stand on the inside with the Almighty is of preeminent concern. Otherwise, the steadfast love of the Lord is a foreign concept to us. We will underestimate its scope. We will understate its value. We will reject it out of hand because we will pursue other things in our own wickedness on the inside. But against this picture, David, as the antithesis of the transgressor, now recognizing a righteousness not his own, but by the grace of God that puts him, places him in right standing with the Father, he now asks for God to deliver him. He says, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. David not only has the heart to pray here that he, or has the confidence to know that he, as one who knows the Lord, as one who sovereignly by grace alone has been declared upright in heart, can become the object of the steadfast love of God. But he also prays that those who would oppose him and in opposing him oppose Christ would be unsuccessful. Let not the foot of those who are wicked deep in their heart due to their transgression, let not that power Be manifestly successful against me. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. And twice David speaks in very personal terms there, saying, Me, 
He says, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. And the third point I would like to make as to the object of steadfast love is the idea of David incorporating there and that personal pronoun, the title of this psalm. Remember who is writing to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. When David writes in the first person, he's writing as the servant of the Lord. In other words, we can say from verse 11, let not the foot of arrogance come upon the servant of the Lord, nor the hand of the wicked drive the servant of the Lord away. And ultimately, this picture of the suffering servant as it will, one who has need for prayers like this because they feel the weight of the antithesis, nevertheless knows that they are the object of God's steadfast love And it is not a hopeless and futile cry when they cry out, Deliver me! And so it was with our Messiah on Calvary when He cried out for the Lord to take the cup from Him and then knowing that He must bear it, He committed His Spirit into the hands of the Almighty Father. Knowing that He committed His Spirit into the power of one who could raise Him from the dead. And so Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He himself had declared, I have the power to take it up again. And now David here, writing as a servant of God, knows that if he is united with the redemptive purposes of the Messiah, he too will be raised one day. Even if we die, he dies. Even as it says in Acts 13, that David saw corruption, that is, he died. Ultimately, this prayer is answered. As every object of the steadfast love of the Lord will be resurrected on the final day, will be lifted from the grave, and the foot of the arrogant will not triumph over us, and the hand of the wicked will not utterly destroy, because we have eternal life to look forward to because of the steadfast love of our God. We are objects of that steadfast love. Praise the Lord. In closing, I would turn you to Revelation 22. This last phrase, I think, is so powerful and a fitting closing for David's psalm. It's very definitive. I read one commentary and I like the imagery. It's as if he's pointing to the ground right by his feet. He said, there the evildoer lies fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Imagine that moment when a shepherd, ill-equipped by man's, you know, technology and probably experience in warfare, steps into the battlefield with the giant Goliath with nothing but a sling and stones to face this war machine some nine feet tall with a sword that most men could barely lift. Imagine how that young man felt, however old he was, namely David, after slaying Goliath. And then standing there, picking up his sword and slashing off the head that represented the antithesis to the purposes of God's people. David could very tangibly point right to the ground and say, There, the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And this is the conquering confidence that David knew even as he was anointed as a conquering king And this is one example, for instance, of his defeat of Goliath. 
But David writes of an even greater conqueror, as we've said repeatedly in this message. David writes of an even more definitive, certain, conclusive judgment that will come. David is not blind to the antithesis, but he knows that this thing is arranged and predestined by the power of an almighty God that is history itself. And he's echoing from ages past the conclusive words of the canon that we read at the end of Revelation 22.12, which say to us, Behold, from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, the son of David, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root And the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so we have it in conclusive language in Scripture. In spite of the antithesis, this can become a theme of worship because death, hell, Sin and every last design of the enemy of our souls is even now suffocating under the heel of our conquering Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the confidence that comes from the truth of your word revealed to our spirit today. Lord, if we have been too shy in declaring in authoritative terms that our God reigns. I pray that David's words would shake us from our lethargy. Lord, if we have been worried that the power of Jesus is not sufficient to rescue us and to save us and to sanctify us from our sin, I pray that the message of your conquering power would heal the sin-sick soul, wrestling with those pains of sanctification. For those who have never encountered, Lord Jesus, the ultimate reckoning that every man will face, every woman, every child, on the final day, with eyes of truth wide open by the light of the knowledge to show them that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, I pray your word would bring them to the cross of Jesus Christ in repentance, that they might deeply partake in the great manifest steadfast love of the Lord. A steadfast love so broad in scope the heavens cannot contain it. A steadfast love so valuable that it is infinitely, Lord, infinite in its worth. And a steadfast love of whom the objects were paid for by the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is in that holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.